For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alan. So, here we are this morning, celebrating again. And we're in the middle of a series of lessons on the book of Ephesians. And what we're talking about is we're talking about your life in the family of God. We've got three new members to our family this morning. All over the world there are people that are repenting and turning to Christ and becoming a part of this family. And Paul wrote this letter to Christians who had done what these three had done, what so many of us have done. And he wanted to give us instructions on how to fill the position that we've been given in God's family. As I read through Ephesians, I found three different positions that God calls us to. And we've been talking about them. If you haven't been here for the other two lessons that preceded this one, I strongly encourage you to go back, go to our website, and listen to those first two lessons because the second one and this one are built on really the first one. The first position that Paul talks about in his letter is the position of being seated. You remember when we talked about that? He tells us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. And as we talked about that, we realized that being seated is a position of rest, not a position of inactivity. It's a position of honor and power that's been given to Christ. And then just a few verses after Paul tells us about that, reminds us of where Jesus is. He tells us that we, if we're in him, we're seated in him, and that means whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. So if he's seated at the right hand of God in a position of rest, and we're in him, then we're seated. We have the ability and we're the responsibility to learn how to be seated, to sit down. The first position in the family of God is to learn how to sit down and rest in what Jesus has already accomplished. But being seated is not about inactivity. And so we talked about it the second week because the second thing that Paul tells us about, the second position, is a position of walking. And so we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about this walk that we do. So we're seated in the heavenlies. This is the reality that Paul wants us to embrace about being in the family of God. We are seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. And therefore, we have the power to walk with him in this world. And it's a different kind of a walk. It is a burden to be a Christian. It is, but it's a lighter burden than not being a Christian. And Jesus teaches us to lay down our heavy burdens and to take the lighter burden that he gives us. And that's what we talked about last week. So that brings us to the third position that Paul talks about, and that's the position of standing. The third position that we, we have to learn if we're going to find our place in the family of God and learn about it is standing. So let's get into the passage here and we'll see what we can find. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to look at Verses 10 through 18. Paul says there, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. By the way, pay attention to how many times he uses the word stand in this passage. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, 
Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So Paul talks about taking your stand in this passage. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about and pull apart. But the first thing that I wanted to kind of draw your attention to is Paul's progression of thought seems a little out of order to me. Because he starts off with sit, and then he goes to walk, and then lastly he talks about stand. Now that's not the way it works for most people, is it? I mean, if you're a baby, that's probably not the progression. Or if you've been in a horrible accident and you're being rehabbed, my wife's a physical therapist, and she said, are you sure you got that in the right order? Because what she works on is getting people to sit up, then to stand, and finally to walk. And where I got to looking into it, I was curious too. I've come away with the conclusion that Paul's got a real reason for putting it into this order. See, what he's talking about in this passage, he's talking about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a popular topic in Christian circles. Unfortunately, there are just not that many Christians who ever really experience spiritual warfare. Why? Because they don't learn to sit down. And they don't worry about walking. If you don't learn how to sit in Christ and you don't learn how to walk with Him in this world, you don't have to worry about spiritual warfare because you're already defeated. You've already given up. You're ineffective. Why would they come after you? It's interesting, the word, that, the Greek word that Paul uses here for stand means to hold your ground. Think about that for a second. Paul's encouragement as he talks about spiritual warfare is to hold your ground. So why does he tell us to hold our ground instead of march? Think about that for a second. The kingdom of God is invading this earth, right? And conquering, right? Why, why is our job not to march? In the Great Commission, we're told to go, aren't we? Well, is, why is Paul saying stand your ground? I think it's because Jesus already won the war. And we're supposed to hold the ground that actually belongs to him already. This is good news when you think about it. We don't have to overcome the dominion of darkness. We don't have to take the ground by force. Jesus has already done all of that, which I think makes us more than conquerors, is what Paul said in Romans 8. See, God is Lord of heaven and earth. Luke 11:25, Acts 17:24. And Jesus has already been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28:18, right? And if you read 1 Corinthians 15, you'll find out that all of Jesus' enemies have already been defeated, all except for one. The last one to be defeated is death. And we still see death at work in this world, but there will come a day whenever even death will be destroyed. Jesus has already won the war, and we're supposed to hold the ground that belongs to him. 
Now, for me, this changes the way that I go about living my life. And it's a freer way of living than thinking I have to storm the gates of hell. It's a freer way of thinking, but it's a more serious way of thinking, too. Because my walk matters. I'm called to hold the ground that Jesus has already won. So what do you do with passages like Mark 16, 15? In that passage, we know it is the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Sounds like marching, doesn't it? But it's not marching, it's just going. See, the, the, the secret to understanding this is understanding what that word euangelion, gospel, good news is all about. It's about news. It's about something that has happened. See, in ancient times, wherever a king was crowned or coronated or an emperor took charge of a, of a, of a region, he would send his servants out to the farthest reaches of his kingdom with the euangelion, with the good news, with the gospel. And what they would do is they would come up to everybody who lived there and said, whether you know it or not, this is who's in charge. And his rules are the ones that you need to follow. All of this belongs to him, and you are required to do what he wants and to please him. And that's what we've been given as a great commission. We don't have to conquer the territory. It's already been conquered. Jesus already owns it. We're to go out and to tell people the good news of it. But that wasn't all that they would do if a king was, was coronated. They would take these little statues, sometimes not so little statues, that looked like this king or this emperor, the one that was in charge, and they would place them strategically all throughout the kingdom. And everywhere that this stood, everybody knew that's who's in charge. Those are the rules that matter. This is the one we must obey. Not only are we like his servants sent out to tell people that Jesus is in charge, We've been made in his image. You're the statues. That's why holding your ground is so important. Because you serve as a reminder of who's really in charge. Who really matters. The dominion of darkness isn't in charge anymore. Not unless we lay down our weapons and give up the ground. And even that is just a usurped authority. It's not a real authority. But what would happen... If this, the, the statue that a king set up like that really didn't look like him? What if it looked like a different king? Worse yet, what if it looked like a clown? What if it looked like an object of ridicule? How much authority and how much respect would that statue command? Not much. If we don't learn how to sit in what Christ did, to rest in what he has won. Learning how to sit down, we'll never learn how to walk in this world in a way that represents him, the way that he's supposed to be represented. And if we don't learn how to walk, we will never hold the ground. Because in essence, what we're telling everybody every day is you do not have to pay attention to Jesus, because even I don't. I don't take it that serious. A little religion is good, but let's not get crazy with it. I don't want to be consumed by this. 
And so we don't walk like Christ. And what we do is we give up the ground. We surrender the ground that he has paid his life for, that he paid so much for to win. We give it up to the other team. And when you're, if you only walk like Jesus when you're here and you don't tomorrow morning when you go to work or you don't this afternoon when you go home, you're giving up the ground that Jesus won. And your life matters. Your walk matters because it says whether or not even you believe that he's really in charge. If we don't take his righteousness seriously, nobody else will. So Paul in verse 12 here, he says that our struggle is against, not against flesh and blood. Why is that the case? I don't know about you, but most of the opposition I face comes in a person's form. Right? It's usually people that are giving me trouble. I used to t- tease and said, I'd love church, it's just the people. <laughs> you know? I used to work in a hospital, I said, it's great except for all the sick people. It was kind of the same joke. Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood because flesh and blood is who we're fighting to save, not who we're fighting against. It's who we're fighting to save, not who we're fighting against. Anybody in here got an enemy? Anybody in here got somebody who's always giving them trouble, says bad things about them, always tries to trip them up? I've got a few of those that are actually Christians. I don't know how to explain it all together. I guess they feel like they're doing God a service by attacking me. I, I am not the only one on their list, by the way. They go after lots of people. just tends to be the way they go about doing things. We all have those enemies, but they're not what we're to struggle against. That's not who our battle is against. I'm supposed to work to say God is in charge even with those people. By walking like Jesus, even as they slander, even as they attack. God says, vengeance is mine. That's not my job. That's his job. And I'm only supposed to say things that build people up. I'm not supposed to repay evil for evil. And if I give in and do what's natural, I'm telling everybody, yeah, God isn't really that serious. God isn't really in charge here. He's only sort of in charge. And I give up the ground that actually belongs to him. And Paul says the exact opposite is what I'm called to do. I'm called to stand that ground because this is a rescue mission. If you've got a brother in Christ, a brother or sister in Christ who's coming after you, the objective isn't to defeat them. The objective is to rescue them. See, the the people that that give us that kind of trouble do it because they're still in the dark. Either out of ignorance or because they just don't want the kingdom of God. Either way, my job is to stand, to hold the ground that Christ gave me. Do you see that? I'm not alone. If you're in the family of God, that's your position too. You've got to learn to sit. That will give you the power to walk. When you start walking, you'll start running into attacks. But you're called to stand, and you can stand. Who's our struggle really against? Satan and his forces, right? And see, there there are two big camps in Christianity today. There are those who make Satan out to be more of a, a methodology 
or a philosophy, like he's not real. I don't know why, but for some reason I thought that he was just sort of an evil presence that, that pervaded this earth. I don't know where I got that message as a young man. But for, thankfully a brother of mine went, you're nuts. He could only be in one place at one time. He's got a name. He's an actual thing. And you better wise up. I didn't like it when he said it to me, and I had to go back to him later and say, yeah, you're right. I got that wrong. See, there, and then the other camp of people are the people who see a demon behind every bush. And they're obsessed with the things that we cannot see with our naked eyes. Neither one of these two camps are particularly helpful in fighting the real battle that's going on. There's no reason for us to blame a demon for everything or Satan for everything. And there's certainly no reason for us to pretend that he doesn't really exist or that he's not a real entity with a real mission and a real consciousness and a real direction, a real scheme. We need to face up to what's really there. There are so many things that we cannot see. Joe Beam, a few years ago. Joe Beam wrote a book called Seeing the Unseen. How many of you guys have read that? And Joe's talking about exactly this. And he talks about the forces that are aligned against us. And I think he's right. He talks about, well, there's Satan. There are evil angels. And there's demons. Those are the things that we can't see that are being, that Paul's talking about this, the evil forces in the spiritual realm are in this passage in Ephesians 6. They are real. Just because we can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. He even threw out a, a, a what if. And he said, what if we could, maybe even just for a moment or a day, see with our human eyes the things that are really there, but they're hidden because they're in this spiritual realm, this other, I don't know, call it a dimension. What if we could see them? He said, there are people that go to bars who would run screaming in terror from those places if they saw the evil dynamic that was at work in those places. There are people who would change which stores they go to and what kind of movies they go to see. Because it's all around us. It's real and it's there. And there, if you decide to be serious about God, they will come after you. You don't have to be afraid of them, but you better respect them. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, Paul talks about this a little bit there too, and he says it this way. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And by the way, the way the Greek is there, I don't think they're talking about our knowledge of God, but God's knowledge. He says, and we take captive every thought. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Well, this is interesting. What are the strongholds that we're supposed to destroy? Again, our, our mar we don't have marching orders. We have standing orders. How is, a, a mar how is a defensive unit supposed to smash a stronghold? Have you thought about it? See, the, the, the strongholds that we're supposed to destroy are intellectual arguments and opinions that people hide behind to prevent the invasion of the gospel. You know somebody who refuses to surrender to Jesus? Don't they use intellectual arguments and their opinions 
to justify why they don't have to come to church? What is, what is atheism if not one of these? What is agnosticism? What are the other forms of religion? If not just intellectual arguments and opinions that keep them from having to surrender to the one true God, to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And when we stand our ground, when we hold our ground, we destroy those. That's the second question. How do we destroy arguments and opinions? And how do we take captive these thoughts that set themselves up against God? By holding our ground. Whenever I was a, a young man, my, my brother, I hope he doesn't listen to this tape, my, my brother who's a couple years older than me, he said, come on, are you serious? You're not going to sleep with a girl until you get married? That's stupid. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. They had reasons for having celibacy until you were married back then, but they don't apply anymore. Who buys a pair of shoes without trying them on? Well, is that an uh, intellectual argument? <laughs> Maybe to some people that sounds intellectual. Is that an opinion? Oh, yeah. Does it set itself up against God and what he knows? Absolutely. How do you destroy that stronghold? By holding your ground. Because my answer is, is people are still people in truth that doesn't have an expiration date. He said he wants it, and that's sort of the end of it. And I'm going to stand here on this ground. And then my brother, whether he ever learned the lesson or not, got a chance to see how that actually plays out in so many people's lives. So back to this original verse that we started with in Ephesians. Paul says, to stand our ground, we're going to need to put on the whole armor of God, not just a piece of it. And he's going to, he's going to describe six pieces of armor that will help us hold that ground. And we're, we need all of them. But what is the armor of God? What's he talking about? In short, they're the things that God has provided for us that will protect us from attack and make us able to hold our ground. If that's the case, how important is it that you understand what these are and how to use them? You're fighting a conquered enemy. You don't have to conquer anybody. You're just supposed to hold the ground that, he, that God has already won. If you're not interested in doing that, I question seriously whether you understand, first of all, where you're sitting. Secondly, I doubt your walk or the sincerity of it. So if you've got those first two covered, then you should be vitally interested in this and holding the ground that Jesus has for us. So, where would these spiritual forces of evil try to attack you? What direction are they coming from? I think the reason why Paul brings out these six pieces of armor that God gives us is because this is where we can fairly anticipate Satan to go after us. Satan and his forces. The first place that they're going to try to attack is your mobility. Your mobility is about how, you, how quickly you can move to respond to things. Right? Freedom of movement. They don't want you to have any freedom of movement. They want you to get tied up in your own clothing. The answer to it 
is the belt of truth. Now, they had different technology. The way that a, that a soldier went out and did war in those days is a little different than the equipment that we wear. You remember every time that you hear about somebody running like Peter or one of the other disciples, they had to gird up their loins. Why, why, why did they have to do that? Because if they didn't, they would get all trapped and tripped up in the cloak that they're wearing. Because it was loose-fitting sheets, kind of like togas. You ever try to run in a toga? It, it isn't sexy. <laughs> it doesn't look real good. So you have to kind of gather up all this loose material. I, I think the fad is passing, but a few years ago we had uh, a real popular trend of, of loose baggy pants. And you'd see these guys, and it looked like their legs are like this long. Because their belt would be just about mid-thigh. And I was standing in a theater one time, and there's a whole group of them. I was sorely tempted to yell fire just to see what would happen. Because I think their mobility had been restricted, right? And I did see one. I saw a young man who decided to run one day, and he's doing this. He's trying, he's trying to hold his pants up and moving. I'm 53 years old and severely overweight, and I could outrun that kid. Why? Because his mobility was restricted. The belt of truth that Paul's talking about images a belt that they were familiar with. Because what they would do is they would put this belt on and it would tie up all this loose clothing and give them some mobility. And in fact, all the other pieces of armor hung on it. If you didn't have this belt, you couldn't put anything else on. If you don't know the truth, you will not be able to respond to things. The first thing that they're going to come after is your mobility. Your only defense is to know the truth. What's the truth? And see, that's one of the strongholds, isn't it? Right now, we live in a society, and I don't think this is the first time or the last time that a society will go this way, but there's an all-out war on what's right and wrong. We're trying, and I think my entire life it's been this way, but it does feel like it's gotten even worse, where everybody's battling and saying there is no right and wrong. It's just various shades of gray. Popular these days is, well, this is my truth. That's your truth. This is my truth. That's hogwash. Truth is very intolerant. It says, I'm right and everything else is wrong. If you don't know the truth, you get tangled up in your own clothes. And whenever the enemy presses and tries to take back the ground that you were commissioned to hold, you won't be able to respond unless you know the truth. How do you know the truth? Well, word of God, I think. And that's some of what you're doing here this morning, I hope. Where's the next place they're going to be taught, coming after you? Your desires. They want to attack you where, where you live. They want you to want the wrong things. And the antidote to it, the weapon that, that God has given us, is the breastplate of righteousness. You'll notice that all these weapons are defensive which only makes sense if we're in a standing position. If we're to hold this ground, we don't need missiles. <laughs> we don't need fast trucks. We just need to, we need the stuff that can help us to hold our, our ground. We need defensive kind of weapons. So the breastplate, I used to be a cop and they gave me, a, I would consider a worthless body armor. Uh, I was always tempted to take it out to the range and shoot it and see if a bullet would go through it. I didn't do it because I thought they'd make me pay for it. But I really doubted how well this thing would actually work. And so I, I very rarely wore my body armor. But the concept behind it was that it covered a little patch here and in the back, which meant if I was standing sideways, I'm still dead. 
<laughs> which is another reason why I didn't want to be hot in the summer and wear something. They'll shoot me from the side is what I figured. But it's supposed to cover your vital organs. Now, whenever you're talking about your, your breastplate, something to understand is the, the, Jewish, the, the people of that day, they all knew that your thoughts came from your head. You hit a guy in the head and his thinker will not work right. So this was pretty easy to figure out that this is where the thinking is going from. But where do you think that they thought your, your emotions were seated? No, not in your heart. They, that's, a, that's us. Yeah, I think someone that was doing greeting cards thought it was a lot sexier to put a heart on a Valentine's card than the gut. Because that's where they thought the emotions came from. And it makes sense, too, because if you get scared, you'll feel it in your stomach, won't you? And if you fall in love, you'll feel it in your stomach, won't you? In fact, your emotions, usually you feel them in your gut. So why does, why does the Bible talk about your heart? I don't think they're talking about the blood pumping muscle. It's halfway in between. And I think what they're talking about, the heart came to symbolize not only the seed of emotions, but also the seed of intellect. It's what you think and what you feel. And that's going to have a lot to do with your desires. The antidote to keep the enemy from screwing around with what you want and attacking your desires is to cover up your vital organs with a breastplate of righteousness. What is righteousness? It's what God requires and what pleases Him. See, if I'm not consumed and thinking constantly, God, what do you want? God, what pleases you? If I don't care enough about finding out those answers to get into His Word on my own or to listen to some older warriors that I stand beside to help me figure it out, I'm not going to hold my ground. So what about you? There was a song that a group called Acapella put out 100 years ago. And it, one of the lines in it was, Are we walking into the enemy's camp, laying our weapons down? Tomorrow morning you're going to go to work without consciously putting on the armor of God, without setting your mind and your heart to seek first His righteousness, there's a reason why Jesus said that we had to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you don't put that breastplate on, the enemy will go after what you desire. And the next thing you know, you'll be chasing comforts of this world. You'll be chasing any number of things. And your walk will not be worthy of the Lord. And you will be a standing statue saying, it doesn't really matter if you worship God or not. He's not really that much in charge. You will not hold ground. But if you're in Christ, if you're in the family of God, that is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So I hope that you will go out each day intentionally putting on the breastplate of righteousness and reminding yourself this is about loving God and pleasing Him. And my first priority in everything that comes my way today is going to be what does He require and what pleases Him. You do that, you'll stand your ground. The third thing they're going to go after is your footing. Ever been on ice and someone pushes you? It doesn't look good. It's hard to hold your ground if you don't have any traction. So they're going to go after your footing. They're going to try to get you to slip. We get the traction whenever we fit our feet with the gospel of peace. It gives us traction. It helps us hold on. 
Gospel, we've talked about that. That's euangelion. That's the good news. Here's why it's good news. It's a good news of peace. We're on a rescue mission. God isn't trying to hurt anybody. God is busy trying to reconcile everybody and everything to himself. He's about making peace. I used to sell insurance for a while. I thought that was like trying to sell cold sores. I mean, you know, you're walking in with an idea and hopefully walking out with somebody's money, right? That's hard to sell. It, it doesn't feel like good news. I don't have to sell anything. But whenever I tell people the gospel story, and this is my challenge, do you even know the gospel story? You're not going to tell the gospel story if you don't know it. It is a gospel of peace. It is about a God who's willing to say, I can take all that you've done and do away with it. I can take every bad thing you've ever done. You are not so bad that I can't accept you or that I won't accept you. All you've got to do is surrender. That's a gospel of peace. And if you remember that that's what your job is, is to tell people this good news, you will have traction. When the enemy tries to push you off of this ground, you'll be able to hold it because you know what you're here for. You've already got the belt of truth. You've already got the breastplate of, of righteousness. You've got the gospel. It'll give you traction because it'll keep you focused on what God wants and the message that we've got which is good. No one should ever have any sheepishness about talking about what God is offering. The fourth place they're going to come after you is they're going to come after your confidence. See, you'll give up ground if you don't have any confidence. Right? How's he going to, how's he going to get you to lack confidence? Flaming arrows. Flaming arrows from the evil one. You know what those are, don't you? They're doubts and accusations. The devil, devil, the name means accuser. Jesus said plainly, he's the father of lies. You know what Satan's real power is? Darkness. Deceiving people. He will do everything. Flaming arrows aren't just about putting a hole in somebody. They're about sticking something that's on fire in something so the whole thing will burn down. Satan is after this. And he will come after you and try to get you to doubt. If he can't make you doubt, he'll make accusations and lies and try to mislead you that way. How do you stop that? Shield of faith. What's faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's uh, confidence and assurance. It's trusting that God... He is who he says he is. And that he will do what he says he will do. I don't have to have an answer for every question or every accusation. And I don't have to get eaten up or, or burned alive by doubts and accusations. All I have to do is trust God. I remember this is the truth. This is the truth. I cover my desires, my heart, with, with wanting, to, wanting to please Him and to do what's right. I got traction because I know what I'm after is giving a good message that I want everybody to hear, that God wants to hear. It's a message of peace. 
we're on a rescue mission, and I'm going to need this shield to hold back the doubts and the accusations. We need to be wise as to how he's going to come after us because that's what's going to happen. The fifth thing that he mentions, he talks about the helmet of salvation. What are they going after? Why do you need a helmet of salvation? Because they're going to go after your purpose. They're coming for your purpose. They want you to get off track in your purpose. They want you to be worldly. They want you to spend more time and energy on your comfort, your family, your possessions, your entertainment, anything to supplant the purpose of the gospel. And when you do that, you give up ground. But you don't have to give it up. Why do you need a helmet? Protect your thinker, right? The helmet of salvation, what's your salvation? What's that? Your life? Yeah, but we can dial it in a little bit more than that. When I was a kid, I thought salvation was for there and then, sweet you know, time in heaven with, with Jesus. But then I read verses that talk about things that accompany salvation. And, I, and Paul's challenge to work out your salvation. And I realized salvation is about being salvaged. It's about being saved from something and for something. For something here. For something now. Yes, the implications of, of going to heaven are, are certainly there and intact, but salvation is supposed to, God put salvation in me and I'm supposed to work it out in my walk. And see, when I put that on like a helmet and I remember what I'm here for, I remember that I've been saved, which means I have a purpose. It changes the way I think. And it will keep Satan out of your head. Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to get in your head. He wants to mess with the way that you think. And the the helmet of salvation will help with that. The sixth thing that he's going to go after, he's going to go after your judgment. He's going to go after your judgment, your ability to discern between right and wrong, better and best. What is the equipment that he's given us? It's the sword of the Spirit. And the sword of the Spirit will sort out what's what. See, the sword, we always think of sword as being primarily an offensive weapon, right? You hack, you slash, you stab. But they understood that it had another purpose, which was to divide things. They could cut through things with it. Look at what Hebrews 4 says. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 says, The Word of God, which the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we're talking about the same thing. The Word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The word of God will teach us how to divide between even the the, the trickiest of situations. See, sometimes what we face is not just a decision between right and wrong. Sometimes it's between better and best. Without the Word of God, how do you know that these opinions out here aren't valid? And I have watched Christians give up ground to people with the craziest of opinions because 
they didn't have the, any of this armor on. They hadn't practiced with the sword. By the way, how would you get good using a sword? Practice. Yeah. So my question for you is, how much time do you actually spend in the Word of God? Or is your idea of sword training sitting here and listening to me? Because I won't be with you tomorrow morning, most likely. I won't be with you this afternoon. I won't be with you whenever you make... I don't even know if I always know. I'm still trying to practice with this sword myself. I'm still trying to learn. You have to take responsibility. I can't hold the ground for you. Nobody else can. You are the one that's called to hold this ground that Jesus has won. All any preacher in any church at any time can ever do is to get you started. All we can ever do is point you in the right direction. If I do a good job for you this morning, I will hopefully not just convince you to say, yeah, everything you said was great and right. I hope what I convince you to do is to question some things. I hope to leave you with some questions unanswered so that you will look for them. I hope that you will challenge. I'm telling you the best that I know, but I've said it before. I'm just a guy. I'm just like you. But I am working with the Word. I am in it. I'm trying to practice what I'm preaching. But there are gaps in my... Yeah, I'm still learning a little bit too. You have to take responsibility to learn how to use this sword. And you, it is so doable because you have the power of the Spirit working in you. What did Jesus say the Spirit would do? Didn't he say he would lead you into all truth? He did. And we spent a lot of time earlier this, this summer talking about being empowered and what the Holy Spirit can do. You realize... This is an honor to get to stand the ground for Christ. To hold the ground that he's already won. And he's given us all the weapons that we need. But it's up to you to put them on. None of these will do you any good until you put them on. That's up to you. They're there and they're available. But you have to put them on. And Paul says that prayer is how we're supposed to put these on. Not selfish prayer or self-centered, self-focused prayer. I listen to some of you guys pray. And sometimes your prayers are all just about you. The way that Paul writes this passage in Ephesians looks a little different than it does in English. Because of the way that he uses his words, it's as though he's saying that each piece of this armor is to be put on with prayer. Do you pray for the belt of truth? Do you ask him to help you to get that on snug so that you can have your mobility? Do you pray about your desires and to know what his righteousness is? Do you ask him before you go into conflict? Before you, and, and where's the war zone? Where's the fighting the fiercest? For a lot of you, it's going to be at your jobs. For some of you, it's going to be at your dinner table or somewhere around the house. Do you walk into a fight with no weapons on? Paul goes after this prayer thing heavy here. In fact, he says, be alert. The word for alert means sleepless. You ever wanted so much, something so much that you couldn't sleep? That's the kind of prayer that he's telling us to have. And he's saying that our prayer is supposed to be for all the Lord's people. That's the kind of prayer. We're supposed to pray all the time on all occasions. All kinds of prayers. 
We're supposed to dress up in this armor, put this stuff on in prayer. And these prayers are somehow all for God's people. I think it speaks to our purpose again. I think sometimes we are so immature and so selfish that we just pray for us and me and my, and we get distracted about our own inability to be perfect. So we spend all of our time praying and saying, well, I'm sorry, I hope that you'll change me. And we don't pray for the Lord's people. See, it's not just one of us that holds the ground. This is the family business. This is the family business. God has called us into his family. He's adopted us. And he's allowed us to sit with Christ, which allows us to rest. But he's called us to walk with him. It is a burden. It's not like the burden that comes whenever you're trying to do the best you can without him. And whenever you do this, you're going to come under attack. And even there, he's given us everything we need. And he's given us each other. And we're called to hold this ground. We live in the greater Alton area. We're supposed to hold this area. Atheism isn't in charge here. Cowardice is not in charge here. Even death isn't in charge here. Jesus is in charge here. What I've hoped to present to you over the past three weeks is these positions that Paul talks about in the family of God. I hope I've persuaded you to want to learn how to sit down. I hope I've encouraged you that walking with him is easier than not walking with him and that you have the power to lay down those burdens that weigh you down. But I hope that you see that your calling is worthy of you not only doing that, but walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, worthy of the calling. And the calling is to hold the ground that God has already won. And he's given you everything you need to do this. And we can smash every stronghold, every argument, every thought. We can take it captive by refusing to give up ground. We can stand up for Jesus. There's an old song that we used to sing out of the hymnals years ago, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. As I was putting this lesson together, I seriously thought about singing the song with you, but I kind of forgot and I thought about my time limits and all that kind of thing. But that's what we're called to do is to stand up for Jesus. That's all I've got for you this morning. Next week, Gary is going to continue walking into this huge vault that we find in, in Ephesians, all these incredibly precious treasures and these powerful tools. And he's got a few more that he wants to show you. If you would, bow with me. We'll pray this morning and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for saving us, saving us from the dominion of darkness and bringing us into your kingdom and for allowing us not to just sit back, but allowing us to actually be a part of what you're doing and what's going on and to play the role that you have for us. Father, uh, as I've studied through this, it's been challenging thinking about constantly keeping on my mind where I'm sitting and to learn how to rest and not be inactive. Father, it's been a challenge to let go of the heavy burdens and to take the lighter one of just walking in step with the Spirit. But Father, I get passionate whenever I think about this and about holding ground. Whenever I think about what it cost to win this world and to claim it and that now I've been given the privilege of defending it and holding it. Father, I, I don't want to I don't want to walk in a way that's 
unworthy. And I don't want to give ground to those spiritual forces of evil. I want to be able to stand, and I pray that this congregation, that we will learn how to stand. Father, there's joy in this role. This is a better way to live, but it is a job. It is a conflict. We thank you for having already won and making us more than conquerors. Father, help us to be bold. Help us to hold the ground that you've won. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.